I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This episode of Radio Motherboard is made possible by John Varvedo's Dark Rebel Collection. I'm going to cut regulations, but I'm going to cut taxes, big league, and you're going to raise taxes, big league. End of story. Let me get you to pause right there because we're going to yes, move well, into the, we're going to move into the next segment. That, we're going to talk that catches. Can't, that can't be left Please, to stand. Please, just take, take 30 you know, seconds. I, we're I go kind on. of assumed that there would be a lot of these charges and claims. And so Facts. we have taken uh, the homepage of my website, HillaryClinton.com, and we've turned it into a fact checker. So if you want to see in real time uh, what the facts are, please go and take a look. Because and take I a look at mine also. Hey, this is Radio Motherboard. I'm Jason Kebler, and I've got our editor-in-chief, Derek Mead, and our associate editor, Ankita Rao. Welcome, Ankita. Thank you. You've been working on the podcast for weeks, but no one has even heard your voice, I don't think. I kind of like it that way. Well, too bad. (laughs) Um, This week, we're talking a little bit about the nature of facts and reality, which I know is one of your favorite subjects, Derek. And Motherboard actually just took over a dig, and you wrote this whole thing about what is reality, which was nice. uh, How did this come about, and like, what was the thesis of this? It did not involve smoking pot. I'm just going to make that very clear. Uh, it's more of the fact that um, we realized that the, the internet used to be a place where you would go for an enthusiast, of, like an enthusiast of things. Like you'd want to go read about like, you know, hacking things or video game codes or yes. mountain bikes or something. <laughs> but now that, so it was always, the internet's always been very specific to whatever your interests are. And there's always kind of a, a filter or blind spots there purposefully but now the internet is everything we realize that people use the internet and don't even know what's real or not because there's there's so much shit out there that like you can just have a story that like recently there was a story trending on facebook that was entirely fake yeah and that's uh the subject of our podcast is about the nature of facts and reality Mm -hmm. in 2016 Uh, we're going to be talking to vincent f hendricks um, and he's the author of info storms which is amazingly titled book that's basically about the nature of our post-factual world. Vincent F. Hendricks co-founded the Center for Information and Bubble Studies at the University of Copenhagen, but it didn't all start with looking into how social media works and talking about presidential debates and elections. One of the things that got me into this was actually cyberbullying, namely that uh, a friend of mine's daughter had actually been the victim of extensive cyberbullying for something she hadn't done. So 
there was a social media platform on which you could post anonymous comments about everything. And there was a girl in school that this particular friend of mine's daughter, they were not getting along too well. And then on this blog, some anonymous quote came to the effect that, that my friend's daughter was terrible. And within minutes, uh, sympathies for this particular point of view about the, my friend's daughter came in, and people polarized like this, very fast. But she had two options come Monday. Either she had to go to school and defend herself against a narrative that was already been established and being becoming robust over the weekend by people chipping in their points of view, or she could stay away. Either way, she was guilty by associative action, and she hadn't done anything. So I got curious to say, okay, so you can actually start shitstorms on people. You can start harassing people, cyberbullying people, where they actually haven't done anything. And only because you get everybody to believe that everybody else believes that this person has done something wrong. And that particular notion of believing that everybody else believes, although no one believes, that's called, so, that's called pluralistic ignorance in social psychology. That means conditions under which it's legitimate for everybody to remain dense. Now, that's a terrible phenomenon. And I said, I got to understand what this is all about, and I got to see whether or not information technology and social media are part of actually amplifying this very unfortunate phenomenon. After the cyberbullying phenomenon, he started seeing this happening all over the place. It wasn't just cyberbullying, of course, and it's not just politics either. Although this topic is hot now, the idea of just repeating something until people believe it's true was used back in 2012 during that presidential election. Most famously, when Paul Ryan said a car manufacturer was going to leave the United States if President Obama was reelected, even though they had no plans to do so. Well, I got to see it not everywhere, but at least it was very pronounced in many different ways, right? And so you could build opinion, you could build uh, bubbles of opinion about people, about companies, about points of view, religious stands and whatnot, which actually really couldn't follow what the truth was, but there was a lot of social transmission in it. And that's the reason why I got the idea of bubbles, namely that you can use your upvotes, your likes, your comments, your selfies as investments or liquid means for investing in social, active, uh, social assets like respect, influence, power, et cetera, et cetera. Because there were two cases in the 2012 election. Now, one was this, the one that you correctly rehearsed about Mitt Romney and Paul Ryan and the car manufacturing in the U.S. And yet another one was from the Democratic side, there was also an issue about whether or not Romney had tax havens, right? And so there was a story being put, to, there was being story being put out about him possibly having so. And even though it wasn't true, both uh, various out, uh, media outlets and the U.S. took it up, and it became part of the election cycle as well. So uh, it's been around, but it's been, it's been systematized to a, or refined to a level that we have never seen before, given the, uh, the, 20, the, 20, the 2016 election. You know, in the post-factual world, politicians don't get the facts right, but they get the emotions right, and that has traction. Well, I hope the fact checkers are turned up and turning up the volume and really working hard. Donald supported the invasion of Iraq. Wrong. That is absolutely Wrong. proved over and over again. Wrong. We actually advocated for the actions we took in Libya. I think it, the debate was sort of what you could have expected, yes? So you sort of knew that uh, Mr. Trump would have 
five or six points that's, that he would rehearse over and over again, and so he did. And that's been a big part of the campaign, of having certain, what should I say, central themes to run over. And those were, and those were basically uh, the nuts and bolts of his, his particular angle on the, uh, on the debate. Whereas Clinton, of course, also had her nuts and bolts, but she was also prepared in a sort of a different way as to talk in more detail about, among other things, uh, particular facts as they related to everything from uh, unemployment to uh, racial issues, et cetera, et cetera. So from that perspective, you sort of got what you expected. And on another note, in that particular way, is that the particular nuts and bolts that uh, Donald Trump has sort of reserved have been actually pretty efficient and pretty effective, yes? And one of the reasons is that he could be, he has talked about narratives that have sort of become, uh, in no small measure, rather central, both to his campaign, but also to the way in which he comes across with his themes. So if you look at many of the themes that he's addressing, it basically feeds into people's fear, anger, and indignation. And those are very good fuels for online viral transmission and proliferation. This is something that you talk about a lot in the book, and you mentioned that people believe knowledge now is they have, they have a belief and they believe those beliefs to be true. Um, and that seems to be the very much the case with Trump and his supporters. I mean, you believe, you know, she can't be president because she might die because she's ill or something. These are things that are, you know, have spread online as sort of memes, I guess, on Reddit and Facebook and Twitter. Um, can you just talk a little bit about that, about the idea that, uh, you know, you have a, an entire base of supporters and, and on Hillary's side as well, that, you know, believe something to be true and therefore it is regardless of whether it actually is the truth or not. I mean, one of the things that you get out of getting people together who actually are in agreement and you get them to discuss various issues is not such that they become more nuanced in their points of view. They just become more polarized. And so they rehearse the arguments that they agree with, with each other in a sort of a polarization game to the extreme. So from that perspective, you already got this sort of partisan view of beliefs. There are Trump beliefs and there are Clinton beliefs. And those two sorts of beliefs really don't have much of a, of a non-empty intersection. So from that perspective, you already polarized it from the very beginning. And then, of course, that aside, now, if we are looking at this perspective of post-factual democracy, which means a democracy in which truth and facts are being substituted for uh, opportune political narratives without necessarily thinking about consequences or, or calculating consequences, but basically worrying more, more about voter maximization. Now, when you get out there, then you have an issue in which facts are only used insofar as they are opportune for your political agenda. or Otherwise, they are either skirted or just basically disregarded or framed in a way that sort of gets to the point where it's basically the facts against you, but then against the facts were framed by the opposition, so they're unreliable, yes? And so, and, and so that means that the facts no longer are basically the gatekeepers of the truth. There's been a lot of talk in the lead up to this debate about the role of fact checkers and, the, and should, uh, you know, should the moderator fact check and should journalists fact check and, and things of that nature. And it seems kind of absurd to even say that, but I'm curious, what did you think of that whole debate over the role of fact checking in, in this presidential debate? 
Well, in a certain sense, it's from the outset pretty disconcerting, right? Now, why should we need fact-checkers when we are talking about real, clear, real-life politics? And insofar as they are real, clear, and real-life politics, whatever they are and whatever promise that you make to your voters, based on whatever facts that are there, you should assume that they, by and large, should be true. So the problem, so, so the, the, the symptom of all of this, or the diagnosis of all of this, is that, that facts that don't, apparently don't mean quite the same as what they used to do, as sort of the fixed point by which we have the discussion. So we have to go back and check the facts first, and then we can have the discussion, rather than just basically assuming that, by and large, we agree on this set of facts, and we take the political discussion from there. And from that point of view, it's pretty hard to get a common consensus or ground for even discussing the most elementary issues if we basically disagree about what the facts are. Period. Because then we have to worry about what the facts are, and if the facts are not opportune for your political agenda, well, sooner or later you will either skirt them or you will say that the opposition framed them in a certain sense, and then you're basically nowhere in the political discussion nor landscape. And that's the reason why it's extremely hard, and you could also see that in the debate, to actually agree on any premises, and then from there on either talk labor politics, racial issues, the lot. I noticed that during the debate, uh, a tweet went viral about, it was basically a screenshot showing that um, a, a tweet that Donald Trump made a few years ago saying that the Chinese made up um, global warming had been deleted by Trump's account. And that tweet went incredibly viral, but it wasn't true. That tweet is still up. And I mean, this happens day after day after day after day, and it's not all in politics, it's in everything. But uh, to me, that just was a very good um, depiction of what you've been talking about, about it doesn't matter if something is true or not, you can still get it to go viral. And at, at, on some level, social transmission becomes the truth. Like if you say something enough times, it becomes true. The number one social asset on social media, the number one social asset of all, is people's attention, yes? That's what everybody is fighting for. So if you can draw people's attention and keep it fixed with whatever story, then you potentially got yourself a very good game because it's all about getting people's attention and keeping it. And that does not entail that the truth has to be among him to keep people's attention. So you can get a viral treat going about either that the, that the Chinese, they dreamt up global warming, or that Barack Obama had been hit in an attack on the White House. None of them were true, but they certainly went viral. And as soon as things, as soon as these sort of things go viral, all of a sudden, a lot of people are either retweeting or sharing or liking, independently of whether this actually entails the truth. But alone, the number of retweets or likes or upvotes make for a very strong public signal to add to what apparently is true or what people believe independently of whether it is the case. Oh my God, what do you want, Eric? Is this not the production meeting? <laughs> it's over. It's half an hour ago, brother. Yeah, I was on the phone, sorry. This is no longer Now it. it's a podcast recording. Uh, it's ice walking on it. Yeah. We've been covering here on Motherboard filter bubbles and Facebook siloing and the algorithm and basically like how 
everything that shows up in your feed is completely different from what may show up on someone else's feed. So I was wondering how your guys' life has been affected by algorithms in a way that you can consciously notice. Um, yeah, I mean, all the time. But sometimes I think of it as sort of pre-internet, almost, when you decided who your friends were and decided who you hung out with and maybe picked people that thought like you anyway. And I wonder if almost this is a reflection of that like happening through a new lens. Like, okay, now I have access to all of these different viewpoints, but if I'm picking things that are already similar to what I think, am I just gonna get fed more of that? Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Well, yeah, I mean, if you are super into white supremacy, it may have been difficult to find a white supremacist friend in your neighborhood. But now you can just go to the wide world that is Reddit or maybe Infowars or Stormfront and find a whole community of people who think like you. So I think in yeah. that sense, it's, yeah. it's much easier. I'm not easier. saying it's good. I'm just no, saying I, I, yeah. think it, I think it's weird that our, you know, like we talk about how AI just keeps reflecting like human bias. And this is similar to that where we're just constantly feeding our bias into algorithms and it's going to keep reproducing that. I found that the best way to get any sort of engagement on my Facebook is not to post on my own wall, but to post on one of my friend's walls who is much more popular than me and gets much more engagement in general because she's like a master Facebook user and has like a dedicated readership of everyone we went to high school with mm -hmm. because she has like various games and things like that. And so now if I'm like, oh, I really like this song, everyone should check it out, I just post on her wall and suddenly there's like dozens of people talking about it. Whoa. And now because that's become the case like my entire news feed is just like Angela's stuff on new on my news feed yeah I, I think uh, that's what's interesting is that you notice that consciously right because like obviously like if you're interested in something you're gonna read more of that than other things and you know there's more and more people talking about how we have like the total perspective vortex we wake up and you read about some horrible thing that happened in some far flung country or like even just another state and you're like oh my god this all this shit's horrible stuff is happening all the time and it just like floods you with bad information so that already feels overwhelming but then what happens is what happens when there's like small levers that are being pulled that are shifting the perspective of that so that for some reason like you're only finding out about like certain types of story or certain types of news event or seeing certain types of posts just because the algorithm knows that that's what you're interested in before it's like eventually you keep narrowing everything down to like the ultimate distillation of your interest you'll never find out anything that you actually like at all mm -hmm. or anything you dislike. you'll never see anything yeah. you dislike that's who yeah yeah it's like uh what was it, it was like uh Back in the day on Pandora, if you were to thumbs up every single song that you liked, 
eventually you'd get to a radio station that was only like those six songs or seven songs like it would just like cut out other ones or anything new so it was a good hack to like get past pandora's yeah it was a good hack to make sure you listen to the same like notorious big song over and over and over but it's also weird because like you have these basically like everything the internet is tuned to try to get as much engagement as possible to have as many people read something as possible or to have as many people click on something as possible so and all those levers are trying to catch your attention if you just happen to come across something it's it could be cutting out entire other interests of yours or other things you need to know about just because it's so focused on what your own attention is and it's not even like a necessarily an active decision it's just the infrastructure of everything yeah the notorious example of this is when ferguson happened like it was all over twitter but nowhere on facebook yeah. because uh, that was something that hadn't been talked about much on facebook so i think it probably didn't the algorithm didn't recognize that it was something important at that moment mm-hmm two things that I think about with Facebook is one is Facebook threads like if somebody's posting a John Oliver video or something they'll thread everybody who's posted it you know they'll say like this person and and so it gives like a heavy importance to that whatever is posted even though it's like maybe five people out of the 2,000 people that you're following so I think that's interesting too is that they're they're kind of like emphasizing that like hey more than one person likes this it's probably important why don't you look at it and so giving I, I think like deciding what to give weight is interesting and the other part is I don't know if you do this but like to get around that there's people who think very differently than I do that maybe I grew up with in Florida but I like I always go out of my way to check their Facebooks after debates and stuff because I know I just like won't hear about that otherwise mm-hmm. well that's the thing you have to actively seek out yeah. viewpoints you disagree with yeah. um, and but do you think we didn't have to do that before like pre-social media? I think maybe there's just less choice. Like you read the newspaper and then maybe you wrote an angry letter or something, or you had like a much smaller net of information that you were able to get, I suppose. Yeah, I don't think we've ever had like this platonic ideal of like a fair and balanced perspective of everything. Because people always, it's exhausting to have to like argue with things or like even mentally or read something and be like, this annoys me. Like so people naturally look to support their own viewpoints. But what I think is uh, perhaps a bit more concerning is rather than just being like, well, this newspaper article is stupid, I'll read the next one. It's like if your entire feed of view on the world is already being like packaged for you specifically to hit the viewpoints you like, it becomes a bit more subversive. And that's perhaps more concerning in how it's affecting your perspective on the world. And that's where like you can get to this idea that someone, your perspective of the world based on your Facebook could be entirely different than someone's perspective on the world which sees something entirely different. And that's when you get to the point where you're like, what is even real anymore? You have no idea because there's just completely conflicting viewpoints on everything. I want to talk a little bit about how we got here. How did we get to this ecosystem where the truth doesn't matter and we're just overloaded with information? And what roles do social networks and I guess the media play in that? I mean, first of all, we have to realize that all of a sudden, everybody has a bullhorn to the world, right? Now, a bullhorn to the world means that everybody can potentially be heard. Although, of course, attention online is not 
a normal distribution where most of them have pretty much the same amount of attention, but a few players have a lot of attention and the rest of us are basically fighting for whatever is left out in the tail of this power distribution. So it's very unevenly matched. And then we should realize that just because we have more information available doesn't necessarily mean that we make better decisions insofar as to say that we could be, we could be individually rational but collectively dense just because we interpret the signals that we get from others in the wrong way. And so basically, all the classics that we know from social psychology, bandwagon effects, lemming effects, bystander effects, herding phenomena, actually have very good conditions online. It's an extremely hospitable environment for people just basically to make their, to make their opinion investment. And if they're in doubt, they'll follow the lead and whoever has a lot of traction with their points of view. So the idea, basically, that we can actually amplify classical, well-known social psychological, social psychological phenomena is extremely potent online. And that is not because the social media are evil. It is not a matter of people necessarily being evil. It's a matter of us simply interpreting the signals that we get from others in unfortunate ways to the point where everybody runs the same way, even though it's the wrong way. So this is something that happens because we, like you said earlier, we enjoy things that make us feel a strong emotion, whether it's hatred or, you know, something uplifting, I suppose. So um, we think about Facebook and the fact that it shows when we click like on something, it shows us more things that are similar to that. And if you start clicking like or commenting on certain things, you'll see more and more of that content. Um, do you think that social networks have an obligation to show us more diverse viewpoints or, or to tone down these algorithms in some way? To think that they have an obligation is like asking any media from the New York Times to, um, to, uh, to the Washington Post to whoever to basically say, here, we, have, we are going to regulate and I mean either from the state or elsewhere, we're going to regulate your editorial principles. Now, that is going to be hard. So one, 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 what could imagine should happen would be that these social media platforms start thinking a little more about the way in which people make decisions based on what they see in their network. And so also both present them with other sorts of material rather than more of the same. Is this something that's happened uh, because of network effects and I guess what I mean by that is I feel like I'm relatively rational online I try to seek out different things different points of view but at the end of the day I'll, I'll probably end up you know liking things on Facebook that I shouldn't or something and you know when you multiply this across millions and millions of people you end up with a populace that is so polarized I guess what I'm saying is is this uh is this multiplied by the fact that everyone is, is doing this? Yes, in many ways it is. And it is also nourished by the fact that your opinion doesn't call all, cost all that much online, right? After all, if you're sitting around the dinner table at home and you have a disagreement, you're being asked for an argument uh, to your spouse or to your child or whoever you're in agree or disagreement with, what your point of view is. But online, I can register my point of view with an upvote or a like. That could be my opinion investment. But I don't need to give you the argument, nor do people usually have time to read it anyway. 
So maybe it's time for us ever so often to give our opinions a rest insofar as to say, if I don't have a qualified opinion about this and it's not a matter of life and death, maybe I should just leave it alone and say, I don't think I have a qualified opinion about this. So either I'll read more and get some more information, consult more sources, and then formulate my qualified opinion, or maybe I should just give it a rest. After all, opinions are easy. Arguments and, and, and knowledge is hard. Now it's basically just a matter of registering your point of view on some blog, on some wall, and the ones who are in agreement with you tend to chip in, and the ones who disagree will start off by actually disagreeing, and, if they, and what usually happens is that they are sort of sorted or filtered off eventually, such that the ones who are in agreement will just be even more in agreement, and the ones who are in disagreement will traverse to other platforms and find like-minded people over there. Now, there are exceptions to this rule, because it's not, it's, not, it's not a law of nature, but it requires a lot of the individual users to actually keep an argument and a debate going online without people getting angry and start polarizing. So you're saying that arguing online is exhausting, and rather than you know, keep at it for more than a few tweets or comments at a time and you know, stick around becoming part of that community, you just go and find your own community. This has been a relatively depressing conversation, and, it's, and this is a relatively depressing topic, the fact that we don't care about facts anymore. But I'm curious, what, uh, what is the way out of this, or do you see a potential way back toward rationality? I think it's fair to say that we do care about facts. I think it's fair to say that the Trump campaign also cares about facts, insofar as to say that they are opportune for their political agenda. And the same goes for the Clinton campaign as well. So it's not like that we are in, to we are in total immune to facts. We are just being extremely, what should we say, um, refined in the way we choose to pick him as so that they are in, a, in accordance with our uh, agenda or political point of view or mission, etc., etc. Now, what we have to worry about here is that there is one feature of human cognition that is important here, and that is the human mind doesn't take contradictions very lightly. Not caring about the facts it essentially feeds back to, well, if we don't have facts, we don't have much of a flagship or a fixed point for conversation, and then conversation sort of obliterates itself and turns itself into meaningless noise. Yeah, not motherboard, earth, where nothing is real. Everything yeah. on motherboard is real. Yeah. We're the only truth on the internet. Yeah, read motherboard, listen to motherboard, <laughs> and tell your friends about motherboard. Mm -hmm. um, thank you guys for coming. Thanks. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.